0: Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Daniel. Here in the D-Report, today we'll get an opportunity to speak with Attorney John Burton regarding the subject of qualified immunity. We'll be able to get some clarification on what is qualified immunity, how it developed, and also how qualified immunity relates to the national mass movements that we are seeing for police accountability. Before we begin our conversation, John, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: My name is John Burton. I'm a civil rights lawyer in Pasadena, California. I've been doing this for more than forty years. I represent people who have claims against police departments for personal injuries and false arrest and imprisonment.
0: John, thank you for taking the time to share your um, your experience with us. I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the subject of qualified immunity. It's a, a phrase that, at least myself, I, I hadn't really seen it enter, I guess, popular speech till this recent mo- movement throughout the United States. I think a lot of people are learning to make sense of, of what is qualified immunity, how does it apply to what we are seeing, these large-scale uh, movements of pressuring the police for reforms, accountability, and so forth. What is your response to how people are understanding qualified immunity?
1: Qualified immunity has been the bane of our profession, people who represent people in claims against police officers for a number of years. And it's just gotten worse lately. And it sounds like a very esoteric legal doctrine that we've been complaining about for a long time. It's quite funny to us to see these demonstrations with people holding up signs saying end qualified immunity, um, and it's very encouraging. It's, it's a very, very damaging doctrine. To understand it, I've got to go in a little bit to the history of it. The modern era of police misconduct litigation really began in the Warren Court era, in the 1960s, with the recognition that people can sue police in federal court for money damages based on constitutional violations under the Federal Civil Rights Act actually of of 1871, which was called the Ku Klux Klan Act, which was a big part of the reconstruction era. And section 1983 litigation has become our, our main tool for suing the police. It gets us into federal court, which gets us away from a lot of the prejudices that exist in the state courts and gives a very full range of damages if we can prove a constitutional violation. Like excessive force, for example, a wrongful, uh, let's take the the George Floyd case, the use of excessive force when they were restraining him is an unreasonable seizure under the Fourth Amendment. So that then becomes a constitutional violation and would allow his survivors, since he's dead, to file a wrongful death case for money damages in federal court. It's relatively straightforward, but not long after the Supreme Court opened this door to 1983 cases, they came up with what was called at the time, the good faith defense. Well, if the police officer didn't know he or she was violating the law, then that's an immunity under uh, common law that existed at the time in the 1870s when, when the Civil Rights Act was adopted. This then grew into the doctrine of qualified immunity, which, and there were, this has been a death from a thousand cuts over decades, but the the doctrine has become an objective test that says, Regardless of whether there's a constitutional violation or even if there is a constitutional violation like excessive force, like an arrest without probable cause, like a fabrication of evidence or or one of these other constitutional violations that police commit. If the officer was not aware that exactly what he or she did violated existing law, then there's qualified immunity. So it says not only do we have to prove a violation, but we also have to prove that any police officer would have known that it was a violation based on existing law. So that's essentially what qualified immunity is and it raises a whole host of problems.
0: As I hear you talk about qualified immunity, you reference this development taking us into the 1870s and also what you mentioned is that there's this kind of um, development into something that is rooted in a doctrine but not necessarily a statutory outline is that correct to think about that it, that it turned into a, a a theoretical model of like common practice but because what I'm seeing right now, for example, is a conversation of people trying to put in legislation to end qualified immunity. So would there be something that they would have to challenge? legal Is there a legal statute kind of supporting qualified immunity?
1: That's been one of our, our big beefs, Daniel, is that this is a completely judge-made, fabricated doctrine. The, the actual written laws are very simple. Let's take the George Floyd incidents, since everybody knows exactly what happened there. The Fourth Amendment to the Constitution, which applies to states and to local police, like Minneapolis, prohibits unreasonable seizures. An arrest is a seizure. So when they were taking uh, Mr. Floyd into custody, they had to act in a reasonable way. And by pinning him on the ground and holding him down until he asphyxiated, that was an unreasonable seizure that violated the fourth amendment. So that's simple. Then section 1983 says, any person who acting under color of state law, which means like a police officer with legal authority, acting under color of law deprives another person of a constitutional right, a federal constitutional right, can be sued for damages in federal court. So that's simple. We just have to prove that it was somebody acting under color of law, which a police officer is, and that they committed this constitutional violation. And then we can seek compensation for our clients in federal court. So far, so good. The courts, And judges, starting with the Supreme Court on down, have fashioned with judicial precedent under principles of common law, this qualified immunity defense, which has no relationship whatsoever to anything that's in the Constitution or in Section 1983, the Civil Rights Act. There's no statute that authorizes it. It's just something that judges have fabricated, which has outraged us because it undercuts both the Constitution and the clear congressional policy of 1983. To overcome a claim of qualified immunity, we have to show that based on the law that existed at the time that the police officers did whatever they did, they should know that exactly what they were doing violated a constitutional right. Because cases unfold in so many different fashions, they're really like snowflakes. We see the same patterns over and over again, but every one is unique. The defense, the officers can always say, well, how was I supposed to know that this exact thing that I did in this exact case would be found to be unconstitutional? And since you can't produce that law and show the law is clearly established, the officer gets qualified immunity and cannot be sued. And the case gets thrown out of court and a jury never gets to decide whether the conduct was unreasonable or not.
0: There's two things that I'm curious if we can kind of uh, expand on. One was your, your review of this qualified immunity doctrine that creates a test a pattern that can, you know, that is used in courts, which is this objective test of reasonable uh, assessments within. In this case, um, the the respective government agent or government actor. Here, it's going to be the police officer. But to kind of give a broader scale, my understanding is that qualified immunity is usually, not usually, is generally believed to be this this doctrine that that is used for all government officials when they are doing their work within that title. But what seems to be the pattern, they test whether the actor, the person, uh, behaves reasonably as compared to other people in that same situation. So if the police officer says, uh, I objectively believed that I was acting reasonably, it doesn't really, matter that the outside community feels that it was uh, unreasonable. So that's the first thing I was thinking about how this is kind of um, difficult, I guess, for us to address because when we think about qualified immunity, we're we're really thinking about this assessment of like, are police officers able to be held accountable? And then the other question or the other thing, is something you ended here, which qualified immunity it's not a defense when you're on trial. Qualified immunity, my understanding, is something that gets you omitted from even going to trial. Would that be fair?
1: Yes, absolutely. So let me, let me sort of unpack many of, of the absolutely correct things you said. But there was one thing I think that you said that was incorrect, which is that if an officer says, well, I didn't think I was violating the law. That's not qualified immunity. And and that's what's meant by it's objective and not subjective. What the lawyer for the officer will say is, how would an officer in this situation have known that what he or she was doing was unconstitutional? Show me a case with exactly these facts. Where's a case where some guy like George Floyd was suspected of passing a counterfeit bill and was taken behind a car with three cops holding him down until he asphyxiated? Well, you probably won't be able to find that case in the Eighth Circuit, which is where that came up. There's no asphyxiation police death cases that have ever been decided by the US Supreme Court. So they could say the law on whether you can have an excessive force case based on on asphyxiation by prone restraints has never been decided. Therefore it's not established law. Therefore the officers have qualified immunity. Now you said something else, which is the community, which in our system means the jury, does the jury decide whether what these officers did was reasonable, which is a standard that's in the fourth amendment. Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable seizures. So was it reasonable for them to take a guy who was accused of a minor uh, property crime and to hold him down until he can't, until he suffocates? Um, Is that reasonable? And a jury should decide that. And juries decide that sort of thing all the time in every other area of the law. Only in qualified immunity do we have to jump through this hoop of showing the trial judge that, hey, there's established law that says that this is um, unconstitutional. And even, and this is something else we talked about before, even if the trial judge agrees with us and says, yes, I'm gonna deny qualified immunity because there's enough established law that this person should have known, that officer is then allowed to do what's called an interlocutory appeal. They're allowed to go to the appellate court right then and there, which in California here can delay a case for two years or more, and have a a panel of three appellate judges decide whether or not there is established law that, that would have given the officer notice that what they did was unconstitutional. And then it can go from there to the US Supreme Court, which has accepted dozens of cases on this basis over the last five years, and in every one found qualified immunity with one exception. So it's it's it really deprives our clients of another right in the Bill of Rights, which is the Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. Uh, A jury trial is very, very important. There's a lot of problems with jury trials, sure. But that is the way that the community can exercise its voice and hold police accountable. But with qualified immunity, this judge-made doctrine were denied our constitutional access to a jury.
0: When you think about this moment that we're seeing, the, the conversation around police accountability in response to communities feeling um, threatened, having their lives taken at the hands of, of the police in their respective spaces, is a long standing conversation. You mentioned the 60s. In the 1960s, that conversation of police brutality, even the sense of lack of accountability, was already there. And as we think about this progression, you know, uh, now in 2020, do you see any changes? Because that's what I'm kind of thinking about. Something that I'm catching right now in, in the spirit of the movement is that a lot of us feel that there is something new. And I'd like to pose that question to you. Do you feel that there's something different going on uh, in this moment?
1: The answer is yes. I do feel that, that this is new. Uh, we went through something similar almost 30 years ago with Rodney King. And I had been doing these cases for about 10 years at that point. And when that video came out, I first saw it, it went the equivalent of viral at the time. It was being shown over and over again on CNN, which everybody watched at that time. And people were becoming quite outraged and it was on everybody's mind. And my initial reaction was, why are people making such a big deal about this? Because this is, this is what the police do. This is, this is typical. And then I realized, well, but this is on video, which was relatively new and 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 people don't understand that this is what goes on. So there were several government investigations in Los Angeles, we had the Christopher Commission report and a special report by counsel, Jane Colts that took a lot of the statistics and so on and, and gave us a lot of insight. And there were supposedly gonna be a lot of reforms, but, things did actually change, but they didn't necessarily get better. I would say they got more militarized. The sort of out and out thuggery that we saw on the Rodney King tape is not so much the problem now. The whacking people in the head with flashlights and having them curled up in a fetal position while kicking them, uh, beating them with clubs, that, that sort of case I used to see rather regularly, and now I really don't see. Also with body cameras, they're, they're really not free to, to do that sort of thing. And just the prevalence of, of citizen videos, which video evidence is, is remarkable in this area. But what's taken its place, I think is a militarized overreaction that police have to sort of dominate every situation. And so again, using George Floyd as an example, to safely restrain a person, even if they're being a little resistant, and if they're a big, strong guy like George Floyd, you don't have to hold them down on their chest with the body weight of three people once they're handcuffed behind their back to safely restrain them. And that's very dangerous for the person. Uh, So they need to be rolled over and sat up so they can breathe, so they don't suffocate. But police now just seem to have this this one-way mentality of, of domination, which is really fed from the top on down. I mean, overtly by Trump himself, who uses that terminology. But for years, including under the Obama administration, they've been giving this uh military equipment to police police have become more and more militarized just in their attire and in the way that they interact with people in their use of firearms and sort of overwhelming force that i think has become exposed uh in this current period and now i think that's something that's more fundamental about what's the nature of of police and what role do they have to play in a capitalist society where less than 1% of the population controls over 50% of the wealth and 50% of the population has essentially no wealth at all. And so what are these bodies of of armed men and women that are, are sort of invading our cities and firing munitions at people? That's I think, what 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 is on everybody's mind
0: now? You pose this question of saying, what is the role of police in our society? And one of the things that I think a lot of us have felt, depending on where you grew up, is that we had a response to that question. When I was growing up in South Central, we knew that the sign on the car said to serve and protect. So they were in our schools, in elementary school. They came in on, like, career day, and they said these things, like, we're, we're community members here to help. But we also knew that they were frightening. They were scary individuals. It was something that, like, the cognitive dissonance of knowing that you're being told one thing, but you're experiencing another. And one of the things that I think a lot of us are now hearing is this larger A larger, at least empathetic movement of saying, I may not feel threatened by the police, but I think the police as an agency is threatening a lot of people, is injuring people, it's killing people. And even when people say the numbers are not that big, uh, I still stand in this awareness of what I'm feeling on this moment right now, specifically as we talk about George Floyd, uh, that kind of served served as a catalyst for a lot of different histories and the, the question that people have been posing is that that you reference like what type of role do we want our society to give to the police agency and I think qualified immunity is a difficult thing for a lot of people to decide on because they feel that qualified immunity is the way that the police as an agency needs to operate so that the individuals can do their job and there seems to be this like larger support of that but there's also this conversation of people saying but we're not able to hold certain individuals accountable if they are always able to even stop the trial itself, like not even get a moment to be heard. I think that's where a lot of us are, are really uh, standing right now is this question of like, what is the role of police in our society? What do we want from them? And in your work, you mentioned that uh, qualified immunity is this, use the word bane. It's, it's something that you've, it's an obstacle. So how would your work change if you were able to remove that? from uh, this common doctrine?
1: Well, the only person I've heard actually defending qualified immunity is, I was channel surfing one night and I heard Tucker Carlson going on and on about how it's necessary to keep from bankrupting police officers for doing their job, which is complete garbage because every police officer in the United States is indemnified by the agency. So their personal assets are not at risk. And there's insurance and all those things, like everybody else. I mean, that'd be like saying, well, how can you drive a car? Because if you hit somebody and you get sued for a zillion dollars, you're gonna be broke. Well, that's why you have auto insurance. And that's why you're careful when you drive not to cause accidents and to to minimize that risk. So with, with qualified immunity, there's no repercussions for violating the constitution. I mean, what we want the rule to be is that if the officer violates the Constitution, then the agency for the officer has to pay for the damages. And that will force the agencies to force the officers not to violate the Constitution. And the the, the standard of reasonableness, the standard that we want the officers to conform to is already in the Constitution. it doesn't prohibit police from shooting people uh, or uh, restraining them or arresting them or prosecuting them. We understand there are circumstances where these things ha- happen, but they're, 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 their conduct has to be reasonable. And that's the standard that everybody else is held to, like drivers, like doctors, uh, every other imaginable uh, endeavor. I think that by eliminating one of the few effective tools that exist for holding police officers accountable, which is suing them for money damages uh, and, and, and making that so arduous and so haphazard that it's, it's really doing a, a disservice. Now going to what the role of the police is in society I think is a, a, a bigger political question. Um, I'm a person who believes that the ultimate purpose of the police department is to maintain capitalist property relations and keep the existing order in line. And since capitalism is becoming so shaken by this pandemic, by the uh, you know what 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 it's doing to the fiber society, we're seeing a lot of awareness of, of, of the role that the police play and, and the very partisan role and very class conscious role they play. And certainly qualified immunity is part of that. You know, It's saying to people in general, you can help yourself, you can file these lawsuits when you think you've been wrong, but don't take too much. We're not gonna let you go to trial and actually hold these officers responsible unless we say it's okay. There's a couple things about qualified immunity that, that having lived in this world for 40 years, I really understand, but would not be obvious to a, a person who just encountered this. Number one is it really helps when the law is clear. Okay, you can do this, like let's take Miranda, for example. If a police officer arrests somebody and they're in custody, if they want to question them about the crime, they have to give them Miranda warnings if they want to use those statements in a subsequent prosecution. Because there's a Fifth Amendment right not to testify against oneself. So that's a very clear rule that's really very easy to follow. When Qualified immunity comes in and says, well, we're not gonna hold these officers in Minneapolis responsible for asphyxiating this guy because there was no case that established that that was unconstitutional on the books already. What they're essentially saying is that there's no constitutional standard. And so it has the effect of instead of clarifying what the standards of conduct are, it has the, the effect of, of obliterating any standards and making the law very unclear. And we've seen this develop in my area of the law where there's actually cases that say when you're an officer is in this situation, the law is not clearly established on whether it's constitutional or not. And you know, even saying that. Now, the other thing is that one of the great things about anglo-american jurisprudence that makes it a a pride of the world in many respects is the fact that that we take a lot of the decision making away from the judges who are are part of the state who are, are appointees and functionaries and bureaucrats in their own right and we give a certain decision making to the jury which is just a representative of the community 12 people sort of dragooned and put in a room and and hear the case and get instructed on the law and then make a decision. And while there's a lot of imperfections, it certainly is a a way that the community can speak and a check on, on governmental power. What qualified immunity does is it takes the decisions from the jury and gives them to the judges. Even though the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution, part of the Bill of Rights, says civil trials in federal court shall be resolved by a jury. But we can't get to a jury unless we can satisfy a judge. And these judges are all over the place, from very liberal to lunatic right-wingers, you know, appointed by Trump. And we have to convince, and we get randomly assigned one every time we file a case, we have to convince them that, well, this officer would have known that what was being done under these particular circumstances was unconstitutional. So there's a lot of the movement of the decision-making from the jury to the judge is really a big part of this, and then the obliteration of the constitutional standards.
0: John, as I hear you talk about this obstacle, what is, at least for me, significant to process is is how clear the role of this doctrine is in circumventing things that we speak of as fundamental to our legal structure. So to reference your conversation of the, the right to a trial, qualified immunity, I think, at least in how I have just more recently been become aware of it, is usually referenced as uh, a shield that the police use as individuals to not be held accountable. But it's also, I think, just as significant and to me even more disturbing to think about how qualified immunity as a practice circumvents something that is fundamental to what most of us believe we have, which is a right to a fair trial. So that when you mentioned that this practice really takes the responsibility away from the trial process and gives it to a judge to decide, I think that's what is, at least in this conversation, one of the most significant add-ons to my understanding of of why there's maybe this movement to end that practice because it feels now that we can think about how you mentioned that depending on the judge's political stance, You may never have a police officer have to go to trial, but also, even if the judge is supportive, one of the things that is difficult is how you mentioned the idea of show me a specific case that we will use, and it's not necessarily the the Constitution that is the model. It's before you get to the Constitutional mandates or criteria, you have to first go through a specific case that would be used to reference whether it was reasonable or unreasonable for the action of the police in terms of measuring, you know, the accountability. And I think that's where I, I feel maybe the conversation takes on a different character, I guess, for me, in significance, thinking about just how it circumvents what we think of as a fundamental constitutional right, which is the right to a fair trial.
1: Well, that's absolutely correct. And um, the... There's over the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a growing opposition and outrage to qualified immunity, but it's been among lawyers, among uh, people who, who, who really track this and follow this closely in a technical way. It has not sort of been in the public domain, but so, and it's a very broad opposition, surprisingly one of the, the, the groups that has done the best work in in fighting uh, qualified immunity and in raising these exact arguments has been the Libertarian Cato Institute. Uh, and amicus briefs have been filed with with a wide spectrum of organizational support all the way from the Cato Institute on the right to the National Police Accountability Project, which is, I'm, I'm a former board president of uh, ACLU, uh, just a very broad coalition of, of of groups that that have seen this, and and there's also been recently editorials uh, calling for a dismantling of of qualified immunity, and you know, organs like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. So there, there, everybody was watching this year what the Supreme Court was going to do because they had a whole group of particularly outrageous qualified immunity decisions that they had sort of accumulated that were pending in the court. One was here in California, colleague of mine, the officers actually stole money during a search and they said that was not a constitutional or there's qualified immunity because that wasn't a defined constitutional violation. Another one that, that I thought was, was particularly outrageous, an officer was, was following some guy who was running away from some petty crime and the guy jumped into a yard and there were a bunch of kids in the yard having a, a party. And the household pet ran up to the officer and started barking. So the officer pulled out his gun to shoot the dog, missed the dog, and hit a nine-year-old girl in the leg. And that officer got qualified immunity. So we thought the Supreme Court would take these cases and do something about this terrible mess they had made. And there were all these briefs filed and really a major effort undertaken. And then at the end of this recent term in June, they just dismissed all of these without accepting a case. One of the reasons that was given was the fact that legislation to get rid of qualified immunity has been introduced in the Congress. It's part of the, the Democratic House bill to to do police reform. And there's no reason why Congress couldn't just enact a bill and say, there's no qualified immunity. That, that could just be done instantly. And that would certainly make my life better.
0: What do you see uh, in the near future in terms of practicing law, you know, and, and obviously the role of police society in terms of qualified immunity? Do you think it's going to go away?
1: For me personally, I think it's hard to imagine what the country's even going to look like by the end of the year, between the pandemic, uh, the crisis of the Trump administration, uh, the mass demonstrations that are now being provoked by the, the Portland developments. So um, it's really hard to say what's, what's gonna come out of this other than it's gonna be a lot different than what we have now. But I don't look to the Supreme Court to do anything. They created this mess, but they have indicated that at least as they're currently configured, they're not gonna do anything about it and whether a Congress will come out of, of the elections that will do something about it, I don't know. Number one, in California, the laws are are definitely trending in a much better direction and we're able to bring our cases in state court uh, where we don't have to deal with qualified immunity at all. And And there's legislative changes that have been made recently that are good and there's more coming down the pike that have a lot better chance of getting enacted into law and those should all be supported. And I certainly support a legislative fix of qualified immunity and endorse those that that make these demands at the demonstration.
0: Well, John, thank you for sharing uh, your thoughts and your experience with us today. Okay, well, thank you very much, Daniel. You've just finished sharing a conversation with attorney John Burton. He provided us clarification of what qualified immunity is, its history, and its current application in police brutality cases. As we see many of our communities throughout the United States advocate changes to the way policing operates, we also see extensions to the way the court systems respond to litigation of police abuse. Here we consider how the practice of qualified immunity can create obstacles that prevent many communities. From their Seventh Amendment right to a jury trial. As we see our communities questioning the role of police and at the same time building a new reality, it will be important for our court system to consider how they will respond to the new directions, manifesting a more equitable and just society. I hope you find this conversation interesting and relevant and take it to your respective circles to continue. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, or any feedback you may have to the following email, comments at dereport.org. You can also check out our webpage, dereport.org, to review past segments. You've been listening to Daniel here at The Report. Stay safe, stay strong. Join us again next week.